I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hi, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. My name is Jeff, and with me is the time-traveling Hoy. Unfortunately, it's only in one direction. <laughs> Good to be back. There's no going back. No. Yes, and this is episode 16, where we will be discussing L. Sprague de Camp's Less Darkness Fall. Great to be here, and uh, this is a good one. Yeah, so Hoy, why don't you uh, let us know what this book is about by reading the back of the book for us. Okay, I've got the 1975 Del Rey second printing, and it's got this groovy 70s lem ye lemon yellow lettering and black uh, purple cover, and it says here, <laughs> A Step Out of Time. One minute, archaeologist Martin Padway is casually, a casually ambling through modern Rome. In an instant, he is inexplicably hurled back in time, to 6th century Italy, just before the Dark Ages. With one foot firmly rooted in the 20th century and the other planted tentatively in the Gothic era, Padway, now Martinus Padway, Quaestor, uses his wits and his knowledge to change the course of history. All right. And I also have um, the a Del Rey print of this. Mine is the fourth printing, which is actually from 1983. So if I'm being a true purist, my copy that I'm reading actually doesn't qualify for this podcast. Burn because the witch. <laughs> <laughs> I was only doing paperbacks published in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. However, the first three editions of this were, were published at that time. This is a fourth edition with the exact same cover, except I don't have the groovy lemon yellow writing. Yeah. I've got a very kind of dull uh, sans serif font in black. Mm. I don't know. I guess we, we'll, we'll keep your appendix card uh, active for this week, but we might have to revoke it next week. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the cover here is a Daryl K. Sweet cover. Uh, we've got uh, Martin Padway with his broadsword and a catapult. Uh, looks like they're about to catapult some flaming thing through the air. There's a bunch of Romans standing around him. Mm -hmm. and he's, he's got the sort of 70s uh, denim suit and oh, uh, yeah. red beard. And, you know, yeah, he looks like a 70s academic in this one. Yeah, no doubt. Very cool. Okay. So before we head on over to the library, we are going to discuss our Hygaxian word of the day. Hit us. Bilius. Bilius. And Bilius is found on page 109 in our text. Uh, it says, Padway looked at his companion with a bilious eye. And bilious means... Uh, spiteful or bad-tempered. Mm -hmm. That's the with the sort of the medieval humors with the, the uh, collar, bilious, uh, bile. So it's the 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 medieval medicine had this theory that we had these fluids in our body that affected our moods and our basic dispositions. So I would have to say that I'm quite bilious. <laughs> and there, there's that fun. There's also a fun point in the novel too, where a doctor is called to help out Martin Padway. And he comes and he's got like a, a like a, a bag full of like animal parts and tools to uh, release the uh, the bile. The bile and humors, yeah, and just <laughs> perforate him uh, and otherwise cause uh, much harm uh, rather than healing. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So I guess we're now in the library. Uh, Hoy, what did you think of Less Darkness Fall? 
Well, this is our first uh, straight to camp book, and you know, there's always been some debate about um, what to camp represents in, in Appendix N, and I, I quite enjoy this. This is him without Fletcher Pratt. This is not him working in some other uh, property. This is just him. Um, you can still sell us to camp. Uh, there's the uh, usual guy who's smarter than everybody else around, although he runs up against his limits in in certain certain uh, situations in this book. Mm -hmm. um, he's a man out of time. He's a uh, archaeologist who's just ambling through modern Rome, and he's talking to his uh, sort of colleague. And uh, by modern Rome, by I must say, this is 1939, so it's actually Mussolini's fascist Rome. Mm. Um, and then massive lightning strike, and he's flung back through time to. Not the Rome oh, that's depicted on the cover, because the Rome that we're looking at the cover we think is sort of ancient Rome, but this yeah. is really the end of the Roman Empire uh, just before the Dark Ages, and Rome's already split into the Eastern and Western Empires, and that Rome is sort of almost a provincial backwater at this point, other than it's having this glorious history. Um, so uh, I think this places to camp strengths quite a bit. He lets, it lets him uh, talk about a historical era that we don't know that much about, uh, you know, the average reader. Um, so we, we really be able to get immersed into it mm -hmm. and, and has a different feeling than what we think of, you know, as, it's not sword and sandal, mm -hmm. right? Martin Padway um, has many of the characteristics of a DeCampian um, protagonist, mm -hmm. but he's not such a smartass that he becomes unlikable. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I quite enjoy this. What about you, Jeff? I also enjoyed it. I, um, I, I didn't love it, but I did have a fun time reading it, and there, was, there, is, there is a lot to enjoy from this. And, you know, I, it is his first novel that he wrote on his own. He did publish one novel previous to this called None But Lucifer, which I guess he wrote with somebody named Horace L. Horace L. Gold, hmm. who I'm not familiar with. No, neither am I. But uh, this is uh, his first kind of solo novel that he's credited with. And I thought it was a lot of fun. I can absolutely see the, 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 I can absolutely see the parallels between this and the Harold Shea stories. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got this kind of uh, kind of goofy academic who comes across, uh, or not as comes across, is presented with a kind of an academic theory, uh, which is then immediately put to use and is, uh, is hurtled through, in this case, time, in Harold's case, dimensions, into this uh, wacky new world. Right. The, I, the, sorry, the one difference being that uh, Harold Shea actively seeks out his adventure. Yes. Whereas Martin Padway just is involuntarily dumped in this situation. Yeah, he's near something that's struck by lightning and suddenly he's catapulted back through yeah. time. And um, I feel like Elsprague uh, de Camp was more successful with the. And I know that that was a shared project with Fletcher Pratt, but I do feel like, at, le at the very least, the kind of mechanics of the time travel worked better in. Harold Shea stories, I really liked the idea that when you show up in this new place, you wake up with the assumptions of that place, you have the language, you have uh, kind of some basic concepts are kind of there, and, and your old concepts are kind of replaced with other old concepts, I, um, or with concepts from this world. I recognize that, that you couldn't really do that in this world and still have Martin Padway behave the way he is, where he's essentially bringing with him all of his knowledge of technology and his knowledge of history to change the world. Uh, but I did think it was more effective in the Harold Shea stories. Right. I think you're probably right in that regard. In fact, this story is not truly, um, other than having this time travel element and a man being out of time, doesn't have any actual other fantastic elements. It's it's strictly realistic once he arrives in, you know, um, 
late Rome, That's basically. Uh, so um, I was reading an introduction to the ebook edition from uh, Alexei and Corey Panshin, which said that Elsbrecht de Camp essentially had a problem with writing anything that he couldn't believe in. Mm. Um, and in the other books with Fletcher Pratt, it's sort of free reign, it's fantasy. Here, the story is essentially rational, so he had to really gloss over it. He knows the time travel doesn't work, so he had to sort of really just gloss it over yeah. and then just get into the story. Yeah. And so I get, I get why that might not be as compelling as the mechanics of what goes on in the Harold Shea books. Sure. Yeah, it, it, it seems very clear that he wanted to write a story about a modern man in this era of Rome. Right. And rather than spend too much time figuring out how he's going to get him there, he's like, all right, struck by lightning, you're there. It's just like in the Friday the 13th franchise, how, you know, uh, Friday the 13th Part 4, the final, the final nightmare, no, the final nightmare is Freddy, it's, it's Jason. But they did have, the, there was some indication in the title of the yeah. fourth Friday, uh, Friday the 13th that it was the last one. I'm right. forgetting its full name, though. So Jason really dies in the end of the fourth one. And then in the fifth one, there is no Jason, and it's all, like, somebody who's kind of doing, like, a copycat crime. Mm. And the fans were furious in the fifth Friday the 13th. So in the sixth one, they decided to bring him back, and how did they do it? Lightning. Right. <laughs> if you just want to, like, come up with some half-assed reason to make right. something work, Sure, it's struck by lightning, it's good, lightning. go, continue with the storytelling. <laughs> we got that it, out of the way. To take it even farther afield, I mean, the whole Twin Peaks of Return is all about electricity, right? Oh, yes. Right, so electricity is all things. Mm. Right. right. And of course, Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, but going forward, as I said, it's not um, fantastic in the sense that it is magic or, or all sorts of other weirdness. But I think it is useful um, for the modern reader because, again, a lot of times we have a problem projecting ourselves into um, a truly alien society. And the past is another country, as like people like to say, right? Mm -hmm. So he sort of splits the difference in this book with depicting the attitudes and mores of the past as uh, alien but not not truly ununderstandable. He Martin Padway slowly adjusts and begins to understand the society that he's in, even as he thinks of some of the aspects of it as being utterly ridiculous, mm -hmm. you know, and he realizes that um, in order to survive, he has to use his modern skills, but that there's still a limit to what he can do. Yeah. Uh, he's very ambitious, but there's still a limit. You know, he can't introduce antibiotics or any of the technologies that are reliant on other technologies. Mm -hmm. So he can't uh, suddenly introduce the railroad because you know, metal metallurgy isn't there yet. And yeah. he's an archaeologist. He's not an engineer, unlike in, you know, uh, Connecticut Yard, uh, Yankee and King Arthur's Court, which is obviously the biggest influence on this book. Um, obvious influence. Um, I'm sure there are others. So, um, but I think uh, Elspreth de Camp does a good job in this book of um, introducing the secondary characters. Some of them are uh, absurd or, or violent, or whatever, but he doesn't have the sort of contempt for them that sometimes comes through in some of his other books, I think. Mm. So, that's interesting. I think that. Um, uh, in this in that regard, I think this book is, is quite successful. Uh, so one thing I would add to that is when somebody is making a concerted effort to make something believable uh, or realistic, mm -hmm. I tend to have a I tend to hold it to a slightly higher standard. Sure. And my suspension of disbelief can be stretched um, to the breaking point. <laughs> Yeah, more easily right. when somebody's trying, going through a lot of effort to make something very believable and real-seeming. So my question to you is how successful do you feel like this book has been at being a realistic 
at a, a realistic telling of what it would what it would have been like if he had gone back in time. Granted, I know that you are not a historian on this era, and I'm not asking for that. I'm asking just like as you as you read it, how authentic did it feel? Um, I felt quite authentic. He definitely gets into sort of like you know the the level of like the dirt and the lack of sanitation. Mm -hmm. You know, like when he's um. When he sleeps with Julia, his uh, servant lady, and yeah. he gets all freaked out because like a louse crawls out, crawls out from under her armpit mm -hmm. at one point. Yeah. Um, he's worried about being wounded because he knows the sepsis is a major problem. Mm -hmm. um, so I and think the entire city just reeks. Right. Of, right. Like, um, without making it seem like a Monty Python story where everything's just like you know six feet deep and dung, you yeah. know, <laughs> right? It's not like that grotesque, but it's like you know again this is a, a reality that people he's talking about realities people would have to face. Um, it probably helps that although Martin Padway is a modern man, he's a modern man of 1939, mm -hmm. which was closer to people who still remembered, you know, horses and, yeah. and, you know, antibiotics weren't all over the place. So he, he was cognizant of these things. You know, if any of us smartphone-wielding, you know, uh, weaklings were projected back, we'd be dead in an instant because mm -hmm. you know, we wouldn't even have the ability to retain knowledge in our heads because we've outsourced it all. Oh, right? sure. Um, so in that sense, I think it's reasonably successful. I mean, he doesn't also set up Martin Padway as a, a Superman. He does have a, a couple battle scenes, but it's more luck than anything else that you know gets him through them, and his pre-knowledge of a certain amount of the situations that are going to happen in history. Um, but it's a, a uh, as enough sort of blank spots in the history that he's capable of being surprised at things that happen, and mm -hmm. of course dealing with human nature and people's motives and stuff like that. He has to deal with that. So it's not like he's foreordained to success. You know, his endeavors in this, you know, ancient past. So I think that's, it's, it works well in that yeah. regard. And um, I think his motivations are solid. Like, you know, he wants to essentially build for himself. He, he quickly comes to terms with the fact that he doesn't know how he got here, so he doesn't know how he's going to get back. So mm -hmm. he figures he's going to make the best for himself in this situation. So what's the first thing he decides to do? He decides to make some money. How can he make some money? Oh, I'll make brandy, you know, <laughs> you know or whiskey, and sell it to the natives. You know, and so in order to do that, he has to figure out how to make, you know, copper, you know, copper pots. And, all. and before he does that, he has to figure out how to get the funding to do right. that. Right. And so he has to meet his, um, one of the most compelling characters in the book is Tomasus the Syrian, who is yeah. the moneylender. Good sort of roguish sidekick to him, in a sense. And he, he meets many uh, really interesting people sort of along the way. Um, Goodmanson, the, the, is it a goth? No, he's a vandal from North Africa. Mm -hmm. He was always complaining about, you know, how... He shouldn't have to work because he's, you know, of a, a noble vandal <laughs> line. Um, so it is interesting to see all the social attitudes in there. You know, the, the Goths, you know, have invaded and they, they, they think of themselves as Romans, but they're not Latin, obviously. Uh, but at the same time, or Italian, so they don't feel like they should have to work like those, you know, dirty Italians, basically. It feels almost like a very... Um, it does feel of that time. You know, you see all those movies in the 30s and 40s, and oh, there's, uh, you know, Guido the Italian, and, you know, uh, you know William Darby the Irishman. You know, so there's a little bit of that, um, you know, ethnic humor in there. But it's not onerous. It's not, uh, you know, uh, egregious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, again, I, I like it, um, but, you know, it, you could easily just be marketed as just general fiction. Uh, sure. It just happens to be that, you know, Old Sprague de Camp is best known as a, a fantasy and science fiction writer. Yeah. So. And I would agree that most of it was successful as well. Um, I, I also think that the way that they dealt with um, the lack of exposure to other cultures was neat because I feel like when, when, when I must call him Harold Shea, when Martin Padway shows up, you know, he's wearing his contemporary garb, 
He is speaking with a with an American accent, yeah. um, and the Italian he knows is not the Latin they're speaking. Right. Uh, so he's got quite a bit of adjusting to do there, but nobody bats an eyelash at it. Right. And I really I thought that was actually very kind of clever because I imagine that around that time your world is so small that you know what your cultures and your traditions are, but you're also aware of the fact that the world around you is quite large. Right. And that people come through this very metropolitan city all the time from very different places with different ways of dressing and different ways of talking. So the fact that a man shows up with an American accent wearing contemporary American clothing isn't really that big of a red flag of anything that bizarre. Right. And no, I, the I biggest really, oddity is that he has pockets on his clothes, which yeah. are a very strange thing. <laughs> like, what? Absolutely. And there's a moment where he wants to sew pockets into his toga, <laughs> and like they all just start panicking. He's like, why, why would you ruin a perfectly good toga? <laughs> um, so that I really liked. What um, I, I did take issue with um, one thing is, uh, one thing though, and, you know, it's Martin Padway... Definitely has limits, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. I like that when he tries to create gunpowder, it really doesn't work out so well. Right. Um, but he seems to he seems to know too much. Mm-hmm. I feel like yes, he's an educated man, and yes, he's an archaeologist. But would an archaeologist really understand the telegraph to well enough to the point where he could completely reinvent it from scratch and understand? Also understand brandy making to that level as well, and the printing press, and creating paper, and creating chemical reactions to like uh, get out of jail, and to make a telescope. And in, in addition to all of these things, also he has such a specific and finite level of historical information about this place that he's he can he can he can tell you to the point where. This city is going to be invaded next month by this army. Right. And it's like, I, I would have an easier time believing that if, I mean, yes, he's an archaeologist, but like, if in the story they had taken a moment to say he's an archaeologist who specializes in this specific time period, and then the fact that he knew so much about the time period is what somehow pulled him into this particular time period. Sure. That would have worked well for me. But it, it seems like he just knew way too much. It was, it was all a little too easy. And throwing in, like, the difficulty with the gunpowder was cute, but it, it didn't show enough infallibility. No, it didn't show enough fallibility to, um, to compensate for all of the infallibility. Sure, I, I get that. I think, to a certain extent, I mean, we talked about this, I think the camp was trained as an engineer, and, um, you know, obviously from the standpoint of storytelling, um, originally this was published in Unknown Magazine, so it would have been a little bit more condensed than we're reading in this form. So... As an engineer, and we've seen this in some of his other works, he likes everything to fit together really nicely, and that's maybe a, a strong nerd impulse that a lot of a lot of us have too. You know that the world has to make sense, everything has to make sense. So I think that um, he wasn't quite able to get out of his own way in that regard, and so that's that's what you're seeing reflected in there. You know, yeah. everything has to sort of fit together. The story has to fit together. It has to work. You know, um, there can't be too many loose ends and, and uh, vagueness. Um, and so I think it's partly a question of his personality, and it's probably partly a question of the format that he was working in at the time mm-hmm. um, in order to make the story sort of fit together and work and just move ahead. But I get it. I get, as you say, that if um, trying too hard, then you start to see the, the rivets and the screws and, yeah. and how it all fits together, and then, and then you, you notice where there's a, a, you know, a, a gap in the seams. Yeah. Um, it didn't bother me as much, um, but certainly if I was... a, a you know, a trained uh, historian of that era, I would be really looking at this with like a, you know, 
you know, really trying to comb over. It's like, oh, no, he clearly got this wrong here. He only read the Encyclopedia Britannica, or his knowledge is from 1939, and we know so much more now, you uh-huh. know. And I have to resist that impulse anytime I read any kind of historical fiction. I'm saying, you know, just go. Oh, and, sure. I'm know. not going to nitpick it to the point where um, where they don't have information that they hadn't discovered at the time that they wrote the novel. Right. That, that kind of stuff doesn't bother me. My, my big concern is just I really have a hard time envisioning any person who would have that level of information, period. Right. Um, I think also this... Um, this may be a change in our society now, though, because I think there were a lot of people like Elspreth de Camp and uh, Fletcher Pratt who were very sort of versed in, in many fields mm-hmm. in, a, in a sort of general way. And mm-hmm. now with the advent of the Internet, we are just aware that there's so much other information at our fingertips that we just can't hold on our head that it's hard to imagine a, a protagonist or any person holding that kind of information in their head. And obviously, uh, it may have been in more general terms rather than in sort of very specific terms, right? But, you know, polymaths have gone the way of, you know, the dodo. Everyone's a specialist now. Yeah. Right. And he is a specialist, but he also has stuff, uh, Martin Padway, but he also has knowledge that's sort of adjacent to his specialty. Yeah. And we find that maybe less common in our day and age now. And so that maybe we're, we're reflecting that back to then and then conversely back to further into the story. I, I think that's a, a very astute observation, and I agree with you. Um, the only thing that I would add to that, though, and without belaboring it, is the um, the level of knowledge he specifically has about the history of when this stuff is happening, like to the month. If he's not a specialist in this exact era era of history, then my assumption is that he has this kind of finite, specific level of detail of history memorized for many places over many periods of time, and I that that's harder for me to grasp. Sure. Than, that, than that somebody can piece together how to create a telegraph. Sure. Um, unless we just believe that, you know, only Western history counts, so therefore he knew only the history that was needed. <laughs> yeah, because I, I would imagine that even if you met a, a historian who specialized in this era and they went back in time to this era, I, I, I would doubt that they'd be able to, you know, tell you which battle happened during which month even, you right. know, or... And then obviously with the changes in the calendar from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar, we have no certainty of... Like general stuff, absolutely. Like I know that the Vandals are going to invade this part of Italy and it's going to happen during this king's lifetime before he had this marriage. That kind of stuff, sure. Right. But if you're like, oh, I think, you know, in August, this is going to happen. Right. I do think there was a a, a sort of an attempt to address this when I think he first asked like what day it is and week it is when he's first in Rome. And they're like, oh, it's the blah, blah, blah day of such and such. And he goes, yeah, but what is that since the founding of Rome? Yeah, because right. <laughs> right. oh, yeah, he asked what year it is even, <laughs> yeah. and they, I, I forget what they say, but yeah. they said like 2000s right. or 3000 something, right. and he's like, no, no, how many years since uh, Christ was born? Yeah. Like, oh, uh, 500 something. Yeah, right, so I think that's an attempt to sort of make that, you know, situate him a little bit more concretely. Sure. Um, you know, and, um, uh, you know, I did have, uh, you know, Renaissance and ancient history in high school, but to a certain extent I wonder... Um, how much of this knowledge was sort of general, sort of background knowledge that any educated person would have had in the 1920s and 30s. I mean, educated to, you know, college level mm-hmm. or above. Yeah. Uh, certainly, they probably would have an outline of, you know, this was the Roman Empire, this is what happened to the Roman Empire. But mm-hmm. as you say, did, would they know much about the late Roman Empire? Would they know the specifics of this day? And this was the Gothic king who was in charge at that time? Yeah. Don't know. Um, so moving on to something that's uh, slightly different... 
the um, the NPCs, yes. <laughs> or as we can call them, the other characters in the novel, right. uh, who aren't Martin Padway, who aren't our protagonist, um, there are a lot of them. There are. And a lot of them are very colorful and very fun and very interesting, and I think he wrote the other characters quite well. Um, I have a favorite. Do you? Um... I would say that it is Tomasus, but I do like a lot of the other characters. But who's yours? Mine, I'm not even sure how to say her name quite correctly, but Mathis Wentha? Sure, she's, she's a treat. Oh my gosh, she's hilarious. <laughs> so, listeners, uh, there's this moment where Martin Padway ends up, um, basically he ends up stopping this marriage. And it's a marriage where the woman who's involved in the marriage is completely against her will. She does not want to be in this marriage. And um, when he stops the marriage, she's of course thrilled, and like he ends up like taking over that 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 era that area. And right, she's a, a gothic noblewoman. Yeah, she's a gothic noblewoman, yeah. and and she's you know very sultry, very sexy, um, very fiery, and Martin's instantly entranced with her, and basically agrees to marry her as well, and then starts to realize that she's also like completely obsessed with like ordering that everybody who's ever uh, slighted her in any way should be poisoned or murdered or uh, kidnapped and tortured. And she's just, like, bloodthirsty. And now he's, like, betrothed to this, like, completely, like, borderline psychopathic... (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I thought she's a really fun character. Mm -hmm. I I enjoyed the way that they handled... that they dealt with her as well. Uh, You know, he did end up kind of coming up with, like, oh, I forgot to mention, I'm actually married. Right. And then she's like, oh, that's fine. We can track her down and have her murdered. Have her poisoned. (laughs) Have her poisoned. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, oh, um, yeah, but but it's going to be a little while before we can find her. Um, (laughs) And while I'm I'm looking for her, I'm going to go ahead and leave town for a while and work on some other stuff, and I'm going to... In my place, leave this very young, mobile young man to right. kind of watch over you. Right. And of course, they his his little plan works, and right. they fall in love. Right, right. They feel terribly guilty that like she's leaving him for uh, for this fella uh, Urias. Right, right. Uh, but I, I thought that was I thought the storyline was fun. I yeah. thought her character was really fun. Right. Uh, so yeah, talk, talk, talk to me about yours. Uh, so I like Tomasus, but I have to, I would say I misspoke earlier. I said Nevita Gumunson, but actually Nevita Gumunson is a gothic farmer. His bodyguard is Fratharic, who's the Vandal noble, who's the yes. gloomy. Yes. And uh, Fratharic is probably my second favorite character, but Tomasus so is my favorite. He's the uh, he's a Syrian uh, Christian banker, he um, moneylender, he who basically starts Martin Padway on his road, but he, he's always bargaining with Martin Padway, and he's always like, no, no, that's impossible, that's impossible. How much would you say? <laughs> <laughs> uh, or how much interest would you pay? Um, and um, he's also the one who sort of introduces Martin Padway to all like the various Christian heresies that are going on. It's like, oh, no, no, you can't talk with them because they're all mad about this thing, and yes. this person's mad about this thing. Um, so he's... Um, an eminently rational man by the standards of his time, mm-hmm. but he still has certain attitudes that are, 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 you know, faintly absurd to us in the modern day. Sure. Um, although I guess at, at this point, Martin Padway himself starts to seem quaint to us because that's 70, 80 years ago now, and so the attitudes that he has are, you know, he's a, he's a little bit sexist, not, not you know, virulently so, but certainly... Well, if you, not, not until the last couple of pages. Right. <laughs> um... But so he's starting to become alien to us, at least in this day and age. Um, but yeah, Matheson's is terrific. Uh, I even think some of the sort of um, his adversaries, yeah, Theudahad, who's the king of the Ostrogoths and the Romans, he's this basically petulant, 
uh, borderline senile king who's doing a scholar scholarly history of all the goths in Rome, um, and uh, Martin knows he has to get him out of the way, but he doesn't want to kill him. But he wants to get him out of the way, otherwise Western Rome will fall to Eastern Rome, and yeah. just, you know Belisarius will come and invade, and that will basically cause Western Europe to fall into barbarism even even faster. And so he basically wants to strengthen Italy so that it can stand on its own and resist the Dark Ages. You yeah. Know? Um, so. And then Theodahab's uh, son, Theodogeskel, who is basically incredibly jealous and sort of sociopathic young nobleman who's always getting Mar- in Padway's uh, way, is actually also quite well depicted, too. So I, I think in um, that when DeCamp is sort of given free reign, he can do with a few, you know, a little bit of dialogue. He can really sort of create a character quite, quite effectively. Sure. Yeah. So uh, one thing I would like to point out, too, if I can, is that... I mentioned the last few pages. So chapter 18 is the last chapter, and it is only five pages long. And I would say if there was no chapter 18, I I, I really wouldn't consider this to be that problematic of a book. The last five pages are really problematic. Mm -hmm. And they're problematic in three different ways. Uh, One is, you know, it's the very end, and Martin Padway has a lot of power. Rome Rome is safe. And there are three things that happen. The first is that he has helped release all the serfs. So the serfs are no longer tied to serfdom, and basically like it's the introduction of capitalism or something. Mm-hmm. And um, But the slaves are all still in slavery. Mm-hmm. And most of the slaves I've seen in the story were black. And Martin Padway is very uninterested in actually letting the slaves ever become free. He says, like, oh, I don't really care for slavery, and maybe what I'll do is I'll like increase the taxes to make it less profitable to have slaves and maybe that'll eventually fix it and i'm just like really like you're 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 doing all these major changes to the world and like slavery seems like that low of a priority to you it's like yeah i guess i'll get to slavery like after i finish up uh inventing this thing and that thing and i don't want to rock the boat too much and then after that there's um there is his new plan to go and have the child muhammad murdered to prevent Islam from ever coming into existence. And then the third part is um, one of his plans had backfired because when, um, when he did create the rising of the serfs, what ended up happening is he was hoping they would all fight for him, but what they mo- mostly ended up just doing was burning down all the nobles' houses. Uh, and the woman who he had was his love interest prior to that, Dorothea, uh, was quite upset about this and was quite upset that this man, Martin, who she adored, was responsible for that. So she basically like calls him out and is like, I don't like you to leave me alone. How, how, how dare you do this? And then he's all like, I know it's fine. You're, I... you're not, you're not that attractive anyways. I can find women much prettier than you. And since you're Italian, you're probably going to grow up to be fat anyway. And I'm like, who the hell is this guy? Like, like he's been such a great character. And then suddenly in the last five pages, he doesn't care. He, he's totally fine with like racism existing. I, I mean, I'm sorry, with slavery existing. He um, is he, he wants to um, end Islam before it starts, and like he totally just like disses on this girl in the nastiest, most misogynist way, who he's been totally in love with for the whole novel. It's really strange to me. Yeah. Uh, hmm. <laughs> well, I'm not going to excuse it, but I do think it's interesting. I wonder, as you say, since it's only five pages, is this something like he just compressed because he just wasn't uh, the camp now? Uh-huh. That he wasn't that interested in extending the story any longer mm-hmm. and then therefore sort of just didn't stick the landing yeah. so to speak 
or if this is any way reflective of you know what he was actually thinking. Yeah. I mean, I don't like to read that too much into authors necessarily. Um, the Muhammad thing, you know, especially where I, I think we're much more aware of Islam now in this day and age than sure. maybe people were in the 30s. So I think it was just purely a pragmatic thing that he's thinking about. Okay, you know, I don't want to have the Crusades. I don't want to have, you know, uh, you know, the invasion of, uh, you know, Spain sure. you know, through North Africa. So he's just being kind of pragmatic. But it is that, it is funny they were talking about that. And, you know, but to the, me, that would be like, okay, we're going to kill Jesus before he's born to avoid the Crusades. Well, I mean, like, yeah. I really doubt that if, yeah. <laughs> if Martin Padway had gone back in time to a time where he could have murdered the infant Jesus to prevent the Crusades, I doubt he would have been doing that in the last few pages of this book. Right. Well, uh, <laughs> who knows? You know, it's a, uh, you know, where, depending on where he was, would he have uh, knocked off, um, I don't know, uh, some pharaoh or some, uh, I guess we're talking, because I think we're conditioned now to think that, uh, you know, all religions have some kind of merit. And I think he's thinking of this more in sort of political terms, uh-huh. like purely pragmatic political terms. I have saved Western Europe, mm-hmm. right? And so this is the next big threat okay. on, on the on the horizon. It's not any particular thing animus that he has towards the idea of Islam, sure, right? Or that, you know, Muhammad is so terrible uh, in and of himself, yeah. but this is going to be the next big threat. And it's only coming up in 150 years, so let's make sure that, you know, this is nipped in the bud. <laughs> you know, or not even 150 years, like 50 years. Like yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and the sexism is kind of that, that casual silliness that you see a lot, of, like even in, uh, you know, um, screwball comedies in the 1930s. Oh, yeah, and he had it, and Harold Shea had it in spades, too, because yeah. I'm forgetting of Gertrude... Gertrude's... Mugler? Yeah, Gertrude Mugler, yeah. who was like... The secretary yeah. who like wasn't that pretty, but he kept going on dates with anyways. Right. Right. And the moment he meets Belphebe, he's right. happy to just kind of like kick her to the curb with like right. absolutely no thought about her emotional state around this. Right, right. So, and also this may also be indicative of also Martin Padway's um, sort of growing arrogance might be too strong a word because he starts off as a nobody, but then he has, he's now an integral cog in the society now. Yeah. Right. So it's him having all this power now so of course wow why should i have to put up with any nonsense you know <laughs> right you know i guess you know. But I, I look at it like i look at jack of shadows and jack of shadows became like a really truly evil character by the end of his book but there was an arc there right and like this just seems so out of the blue like he was really like not a bad guy and then suddenly he's like let's murder muhammad this, right. well, this he, woman he, i love this woman who i've been in love with is ugly we'll right. get that so who well, cares he did treat, you know, he did kick Julia to the curb after his one-night stand. And, sure, but if I had a one-night stand with somebody and I then saw crabs crawling all over them yep. too, I would also yep. kick that person <laughs> right. to the curb. That's um, completely understandable. Right. And, and he is um, a, a manipulative person, although it, it's it's not clear earlier in the book whether it's he's manipulative purely pragmatically speaking or if it's part of his personality, right? Because yeah. he, he's just trying to get something resolved so that he can survive. Um, but at this point, maybe, again... As you say, you know, he's kind of used to power and, you know, so sure. power corrupts. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so but, should we move over to the gaming aspect sure, of this? Sure, sure. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is a specifically called out title in the Appendix N. Um, what do you think? Why, why, why is that? Um, I think that this is a, um, uh, are we talking gaming-wise, I think it's interesting because we can then take a modern Dungeons & Dragons player and say, okay, you can use your, this is an example of how you might use your anachronistic out-of-game knowledge mm-hmm. in the game. Oh, well, we can build a trap like this. Okay, well, do you know how to do this? Is this available? This is how you can treat that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's been said before that Dungeons & Dragons is not truly a medieval game. It's actually a game of, you know, the frontier west, yeah. but with 
you know, science fiction and fantasy trappings. Yeah. Right? The attitudes, I should say, are, are of the frontier West. Sure. You know, going into sort of unconquered territory and, and civilizing it and, you know, looting it and doing all these kind of things like that. So, and in this sense, it's, again, D&D, it's a game of modern people projecting themselves into an imagined past. Mm-hmm. And so in this, we can stand in as Martin Padways and, and figure out how we would affect this world. Yeah. And it is a conc- concrete world with societies and technologies that are established and developed mm-hmm. and how much effect can we have on that yeah and so and you can take that and say okay this is how i'd handle player characters suddenly saying oh i want to build a steam engine it's like well you as a player might have this knowledge but does your character have this knowledge yeah. and even if you had a character who has that knowledge do you realize what else would go into building this you know you need to you might know how the steam engine works but can you build metal that's strong enough not to blow up yeah. to do this blah 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 sure um so I think it appealed to Gary Gygax also because it seems like he was a bit of an amateur historian in a lot of regards, so yeah. I think that that had a strong appeal to him. Uh, gameable, um, this is the social game, right? Something we don't always play for, right? The the aspect of dealing with nobility, you know, mm-hmm. you know, instead of having like, oh, I killed the king, you know, <laughs> which sure. a lot of players will do, that murder hobo thing, right? And the domain game, you right. know, it's like there's a lot of, and, and war gaming as well. Right. But, you know, like when I brought up the example of him helping the serfs rise, right. you know, and part of the reason he was doing that was his, 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 his he was outnumbered and right. he needed to increase his army. Right. And he managed to do so in a different way, but his original plan was let's get the serfs to work for us. Mm-hmm. If we can release them from their serfhood and let them know that they can actually, you know, make money and, 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 and prosper, then they will fight for us. But then what they ended up doing instead mm-hmm. was, you know, uh, pillaging and, and mm-hmm. looting and burning down their their former masters' homes. Right. Uh, so and it's just also, getting in the way in yeah. the big battle. And I think it's also a fun example of like you know when you're playing Dungeons and Dragons or any kind of fantasy role playing game, just because you have a plan doesn't mean it's going to go the way you had you, you had envisioned. Right. So um, I think it's it's that is a great example of like for for the judge or the the, the dungeon master to like you know try to think about you know uh, I'm not saying every time players have a plan to try to mess with it, like, please let their plans go off every now and again. But if you, if you're clearly seeing something when they're talking about their plan that they're not seeing, then please take advantage of that because that's really fun and entertaining stuff at the table. Right. There's been, I think we talked about this before. There's that um, idea, that improv idea that people have brought from into story games initially and now into regular Dungeons and Dragons about yes and. Mm -hmm. But I like, I prefer, and I think what you're getting at is yes, but. Sure. <laughs> right? So people come up with something that says, yes, but. <laughs> it's like that, I, 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 there's a name for it, I'm forgetting what it is, but there's something, there's like this meme that's going around the internet right now, um, and actually it's, it's, it's not new, where you wish for something and then somebody ruins your wish. Right. So it's like, I wish I have it, I, I wish I got a new car, and this one's like, okay, you have a new car, but it has no engine. Right. You know, like that, that kind of a thing. Right. Uh, I mean, this is not quite the genie's wish like that you're talking about, but this definitely has a lot of the sort of laws of unintended consequences. So I think yeah. it's I think it's fun to play with that. I think that um, in Dungeons and Dragons, right, you should always be you shouldn't be um, bringing stuff in out of nowhere. But I think you should always be complicating your players' lives, as you say. Yeah, it's yeah. not like oh, I want to release the serfs. Okay, well, a dragon attacks you instead. Right. Like that, I mean, that that's not clever or cute. Right. You know, I mean, if you if you have foreshadowed that there's a dragon involved, then sure, whatever. Right, right. But like, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. If if it's playing into what's going on. Right. Um, so I think um, this is a great example of, I guess, as you said, because yeah, you addressed Tomas and his characters as the NPCs. This is a great example of the role-playing aspect of the RPG, like, if we want to take that. Okay, here we have a person with modern attitudes who's trying to change the world, as we said, and 
this is how you would roleplay the other side of it, instead of just saying, oh, letting them either steamroll you or automatically just saying, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, you try that, but this happens. Mm-hmm. You try that, but this happens, mm-hmm. and so on. And that the world is going on around him. He might know that a certain thing is happening, but still things are always bumping into his plans, yeah. no matter what. The world is always going on around him. Now, I'm not one of those... Um, DMs who can sort of like keep a mental calendar in my mind of like all the other factions that are going in this at this day this thing happens no matter what the players do and this day this happens. I think that's something that every DM wants to be and I don't think there's I don't think any of them are unless they have like some superior mental Right. There's a few bloggers out there who are a little OCD, but I won't name them. But uh, God bless them, you know. <laughs> sure, sure. But yeah. I, I don't think the yeah. I don't think a normal person has the kind of capacity to juggle that many things in their mind at the same time right. and not be completely exhausted by the right. end of it and still be able to focus on creating a fun and interesting game. Right. Certainly at the table not. I mean we could certainly talk about okay, in between sessions this thing happens, so you come back and this thing has happened. Yeah. Right. You know Absolutely. And, and you did this thing last session and this is how it's affected the world. You know, now the uh, the city watches on guard at all the palaces because they know that you know you robbed this one, so you're not going to be able to rob the palaces that easy. So you're going to have to find another target, yeah. right? Um, that kind of thing, like that. One um, thing I really enjoyed that I think would work really well in adventure writing or in your game on the um, at the table is I really like the way that they played with superstitions mm-hmm. and um, specifically. Uh, there, there was a moment where somebody was, um, I, I forget why they ingested, they ingested some dust from some saint's tomb as some way of like dealing with some kind of a illness a, or some something. kind of an illness, yeah. And then there's another moment where somebody was trying to figure out something, and the way they did it is they put um, a bunch of pigs into three different pens. And one of them was labeled Goths, one was labeled Vandals, one was labeled uh, something else. Like, like the, Greeks, the, like the, the Eastern or Romans or the Byzantines. Or exactly, like something like that. And then they just starved all the pigs. And the, the last pen of pigs that still lived was the one that, like, was... Went out. Or, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, like, it's just totally, like, ingesting the tomb, the dust from a tomb is disgusting. Right. Starving pen, 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 pens full of pigs for divination purposes is absurd and cruel and ridiculous um but i think that those kinds of things are kind of fun things that you can insert into your game to kind of create this world where you know not everything is logical and especially the worlds that we're playing in are magic so the idea that the dust from a tomb could heal you of 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 some kind of an illness or that starving pigs could have divination properties actually makes even more sense mm-hmm. in a Dungeons and Dragons, Dungeon Crawl Classics, Lamentations of the Flame Princess kind of setting than it does even in this. Sure. And it was very common in this. Right. Um, I come back to that thing that Ken Height often says, and I've come to believe more, which is that the real world and our past is far stranger than anything that we can think of, <laughs> oftentimes. Uh, yes. Uh, because no matter what, we're modern people, right? So it's hard for us to create in our minds, these mindsets that are just, like, again, the past is another country, right? So, Mm -hmm. as you say, this is so alien. Um, So, any kind of weirdo death cult that we create is probably not as weird as actual Christianity or Islam or anything else that's often lived with. A weirdo death cult. (laughs) And really, in, like, if you're playing, like, Forgotten Realms, if you're going to be tortured by somebody, it's going to be a weirdo death cult. In Less Darkness Fall, if you're going to be tortured by somebody, it's going to be a government official. Right. And they're going to be thrilled at the opportunity to torture you because they love torturing people (laughs) because it gets them the information that they they want. Right. Not, not, not Not even that if it's real. They just want to know that somebody has... 
said, yes, I'm guilty of this crime. Right. So they get that, and they also get some sick satisfaction from doing it. It becomes, like, fun for them. Right. Like, just the fact that these people are so, like, torture-hungry. Right. And I feel like... It, I feel like Game of Thrones does a really good job of making their um, kind of their like governors and people people who like run 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 like small areas very kind of cruel mm. and uh, villainous um, without even necessarily like it's like oh I'm trying to spread chaos and evil all across the land ha right. it's just like no like I just I really like to exert power over you and show that I have power over you and I'm going to do that with torture right and um, you know to bring it back to like Martha Swentha as you said she seems psychotic uh, but that's maybe only by our standards it's completely irrational for her not to want to have any rivals around of right? course right and from so, her perspective it makes sense because right. if I kill these people then I'm safe right and so to put ourselves in that mindset and say oh okay so that's again um, you know, what is rational for that situation? Mm-hmm. Now, we don't necessarily want to put ourselves as GMs or players in that mindset a lot of times because sometimes it's hard to come out of kind of like effectively, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, but I think it's useful to do that and look at, you know, people aren't necessarily arbitrarily cruel. It may seem that way from our modern perspective, but it's, you know, still awful, but very rational yeah. in the, the circumstances that they're in. Yeah, and I guess what I'm kind of getting at with the torture part specifically, too, is that, you know, in our gaming we have villains, but sometimes the villains don't have to be evil things. Like, sometimes it could just be, like, if you end up cr- if you end up breaking the, the wrong random rule right. uh, in this town, the wrong law that right. really made no sense to you that you may not have even known about when you got to town, like right. in, like, the Dying Earth books when, right. those, when those, kinds of, those kinds of things happen, um, you might end up in a situation where... They're threatening to torture you. Right. And, like, if you don't get out of the situation, like, nasty stuff is going to happen. And I, I think that's another fun way of just kind of adding in that uh, another level of, of um, fear and intensity and excitement to sure. people. Uh, uh, one thing we should definitely consider, uh, especially in sort of um, more old-school style games, is that maybe the player characters and their party are in some senses the villains of the piece, mm-hmm. right? Because they're agents of chaos. No matter what their alignment might be, quote-unquote, lawful, they're coming into situations that are well-established, mm-hmm. right? They're not necessarily restoring order. They might be good alignment or lawful alignment, but they're disrupting the order. Yeah. And so from the standpoint of our opposition, we won't call them the villains, the player characters are the forces of chaos. They're the orcs. Yes. They're the villains. Absolutely. And so have them respond accordingly in that way. Right? It's not just about pure power. It's like, wow, this thing is coming in. Literally, these are reavers coming in and mm-hmm. trying to take the gold or whatever, you know? Yeah, it's like the reverse Lord of the Rings and the reverse Hobbit. It's right. like, here's the Shire, yeah. and they're perfectly happy with all the stuff that's going on, and their whole life is the whole world's suddenly changing because these other these other forces are coming in. Right. Uh, yeah, you, these other forces, the, the, the forces that you are could be, from their perspective, right. the bad forces that are changing things that have been working perfectly well all along. Right. And, and that, you know, Martin Padway is a disruptive force, if nothing else. And yeah. he thinks he's establishing order. And we've talked about some certain other books, uh, you know, the Dying Earth books. Um, you know, a lot have a lot of antiheroes. It's very possible that Jack of Shadows is actually the villain of his story, mm-hmm. you know. So um, I, wouldn't get, I wouldn't say Martin's the villain of the story, but you can see why people would be opposed to Martin Padway yeah. uh, in, this, in this story because, again, he's bringing something completely new. They think they've been ticking along just fine. Mm-hmm. You know, Rome's been around for 800 years or however yeah. long. So, you know, they don't know that Rome is going to fall. He knows. As far as they're concerned, it's just been the same as it's always been. Yeah. Know? So... And I think another thing this book does really well that you could take into your gaming and have a lot of fun with is the idea that people in power are paranoid 
and they want to wipe out any threats, any perceived threats. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Martin Padway is at one point arrested on, um, arrested for sorcery. Right. And certainly in your Dungeons and Dragons, Dungeon Crawl Classics, whatever game, uh, magic users are serious threats. Mm -hmm. The kinds of things you can do with magic is really intense and really scary and terrifying. Just one person with a magic missile just walking around town can just start slaughtering people left and right. You know, um, and then also as, as adventurers, as a party of adventurers, here you guys are like a group of like three to six people who are, who are banded together, right. who've got each other's backs, who are all super powerful, and who are like geared up with these really great, beautiful, like magical items right. and things Basically like that. Basically super villains. Basically super villains, yeah, because, and, and suddenly like, you know, you're, the, the town that you're, you're in, you think you're in charge of this town, but these six people here are suddenly there, and like they're, you know, going out of the town and like finding all these great treasures and bringing it back and like buying a bit all, all of the goods in the town. I can see where maybe the people who are in power are going to start to get really paranoid and think the next thing they're going to want to do is they're going to want to take over this town. Mm -hmm. They're going to want to take my position of power. And we know that that's almost never what the player characters want to do. They, they don't want to like they don't want to like end up taking some bureaucratic role where they're in charge of running a town. But that bureaucrat doesn't know that. Right. Um, yeah, and it's interesting. I think to a certain extent, um, modern gaming, except for maybe Adventure Conquer King, has gotten away from the domain game, mm -hmm. but it was built into OD&D and AD&D. You know, you're yeah. up to ninth level, you get a keep, and so mm -hmm. I think that Gygax, right, Gygax and his generation were, were more receptive. I think that's why they had those rules. I mean, that's and that's maybe what he was talking about. You know, this book is specifically addressing that. that mm -hmm. As you say, the domain game, getting to the point, leveling up to the point where you have followers, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's not as popular now, uh, certainly with the advent of I don't know. I don't know if it was third edition or so when that started really happening. But certainly with the advent of video games, you know, you don't have to have a party, these large parties. It's usually you, super powered, yeah. you know, going through. Um, but a return to that flavor might be an interesting way to go. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that DCC necessarily lends itself well to that, but certainly Adventure Conquer King is out there. Um, Lamentations is not explicit about that, but they do have a lot of rules for hirelings mm -hmm. and spending your money and doing different things like that. So I think that. Um, it's not necessarily an aspect that doesn't interest people, but it hasn't been at the forefront of gaming for a long time, mm -hmm. right? And so I think it, you know, maybe it's a welcome return to that, um, or at least to have that as an element that is available to people yeah. to sort of snap into their, you know, larger kit. You mm -hmm. know? So, um, you know, your mileage may vary. You have to look at the people that you're playing with. But even if you're playing with a group of people who've never done that, maybe if you start introducing the social element a little bit more and see how it sort of goes over at your table, then you can add more at more and more as you go along. Because as you say, as once they get up to high level, either you have to constantly ramp up the power of the challenges or you have to change the nature of the challenge. Yeah. So, uh, but what else? What else in terms of gaming that you might think of? Then? What else in terms of gaming? Sure, I think there's... Um, I thought it was pretty entertaining at the beginning of the story when he shows up and all he's got is his American coinage and some traveler's checks and some, I think, keys or something. Right, and I think his pipe and like a little bit of tobacco. And yeah, <laughs> and what he does is he goes to a moneylender to try to see what he can get for this. And, you know, I feel like in fantasy role-playing games, we tend to be pretty lazy about gold pieces, silver pieces, and copper pieces. Mm -hmm. You know, a copper is worth 10 silver, 10 silver is worth 10 gold. 
Um, right, it's not the weird like twelve shillings to a you know yeah. a crown or something like that. And I'm not saying that you need to come up with some complicated thing for it, but what I think could be interesting is as you go from kingdom to kingdom, it works differently, mm -hmm. you know. And maybe when you go to the different kingdom, maybe copper is worth more there. Right, your gold's worth nothing. That's we, we you know we we uh, you know spread that on our toast for breakfast. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I'm, and I'm not saying that like you know suddenly you go somewhere where copper is the platinum or something. That's, that, I mean that that would be kind of silly. But like maybe you go to a place where like copper is is so abundant that it it is practically worthless, and then you go to another place where like it's really not that abundant. So instead of it being worth you know one tenth of a silver, here it's worth like one fifth of a silver. Right. But also maybe you just go to a place where they just don't recognize your coinage. Right. You know you go there and like yes it's gold and it has but it has like this weird stamp on it and they just don't recognize that as being anything that's valuable to them because it doesn't have their stamp on it. Right. Which is how, I mean, that's how we live now. Right. I, I, if I walk into a Starbucks and I hand them a peso, right. that peso means nothing. It's worthless. Right. But it's still money. Right. I mean, I guess obviously, well, you know, D&D, &D, they're extracting it and it, they're assuming that gold has some sort of level of intrinsic value, which we know is actually not the case. It's only because of its rarity, yeah. you know, in the modern age. Um, that's a... a you know, maybe a deeper rabbit hole. Again, we talk about knowledge that most people have, that, pe that most people want to go down. But I think it is very useful to have that if you have a game that's set at sort of the intersection mm -hmm. of different societies and different cultures. Um, so, for example, if you're brushing up against the Dwarven Kingdom, you know, they got all the gold they need. What do you, you know, what do you need to put more gold from? They're under the mountains, right? Yeah. So what can you bring them? That they don't have. Can you bring them, you know, truckloads full of carrots? Maybe they need, you know, fresh produce. Sure. You know, something like that. Yeah. Um, so that might be interesting. So you're guarding a caravan of what you think is ridiculous, a caravan of turnips, right? But to them, it's like, oh, we live under the mountains. We don't get any day, you know, sunlight. You know, of course we want fruits and vegetables. Bananas. That's priceless. <laughs> you know? So that I think would be cool. Um, and you because know, there's always that trope of like the DMs, the uh, player characters being caravan guards, right? Yeah. And then. Um, Again, it's not necessarily re relating directly to the book, but let's make the treasure not so portable. Let's make it difficult to deal with. Let's make it, uh, you know, as you say, you know, a, a wagon load full of fruit. Let's make it paintings that are enormously hard to move, and then you have to find the right buyer for them. Or exotic animals. Exotic animals, uh, furs, pelts, fabrics. I mean, historically, what drove the exploration, right? It was looking for spices, right? Black pepper. Right, a pound, a pound of black pepper was worth more than its weight in gold in you know in the in the Middle Ages, right? Mm -hmm. So something like that would be really fascinating. You say, okay, here's this, but now you have to preserve your treasure. You have to get it out one piece. Yeah. Um, we have plenty of time. So, okay. um, so um, yeah, let's mix that up a little bit. You know, um, again, I think some games sort of abstract that a little. And, and you know, we know that DCC is very rules light, so they tend to gloss that over. I mean, you know, you can buy stuff with gold, but they're not, it's not really an economic system built into it. Mm -hmm. um, I think um, Adventure of Conqueror King, I, again, I will mention, I think they are more explicit about that. Uh, Lamentations of Flame Princess is very economical, but they still sort of drill into it, and they're on a silver standard, mm -hmm. which I think is also more interesting rather than just having gold lying around all over the place. Yeah, I agree. Um, and that would maybe be something I would adopt as a house rule if I was running a, a, a regular campaign is maybe take that port that economic system over to you. Same deal. You know. Um, and anything in a module that says gold right. becomes silver and says, right. that says platinum becomes gold. Right. And so then and the platinum people, doesn't exist. Right. And then it makes people like really hard to get 
you know, it's, it's not like your first haul, you instantly can go out and buy plate armor or yeah. a war horse or mm -hmm. a crossbow. It's a big yeah. deal. You know, you have a, you know, you have a short sword or you have a, a club yeah. and it's maybe like two adventures in before you get it, you know, and that way if you're looting an orc and you get his sword, that's a big deal. It's like, oh, I got a sword. It's great. Yeah. You know, I've got armor. It's got a big hole in it, but it's still better than nothing, you know? And I do think when you do that, you also have to make it make sense within the economy as well, because mm -hmm. if gold is exceedingly rare and yeah. almost nobody ever gets a gold coin, then plate mail is not going to cost 1,200 gold coins. Right. <laughs> yes, right. nobody's ever seen 1,200 right. gold coins in one place. You know, it's hard, and, you know, some of this requires a little bit of research, but you should, you know, mostly hand wave it and just get to figure out, well, uh, a horse is at least the equivalent of a car, mm -hmm. right? So what what is a car? How much does it take? How much does it take me? Does it take me two years, three years to pay off a car? You know the average person, right? So how would you know how would that happen in this world? So mm -hmm. even if you don't have a specific historical number to attach to it, you can sort of fudge it like that. Say, yeah, yeah this is the equivalent of you know three three years worth of you know uh, pay for such and such. Um, but yeah, I think um, messing around with that, having the intersection in the meetings with societies is always an interesting aspect. And this is clearly what Less Darkness Falls, right? It's, it's Western Europe, but it's the meeting of the modern and the ancient. So it's essentially two different worlds yeah. meeting. Um, so, uh, and narrowly avoiding the Dark Ages. Narrowly avoiding the Dark Ages. And of course, there's a debate now, now whether there was truly such a thing as the Dark Ages. But uh, for our purposes and this book's purposes, it's great. And as a narrative trope, the fall of an empire and the fall, the loss of civilization, you know, is always a, you know a good thing to play with. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's actually another interesting thing. Maybe we haven't hit on strongly enough in terms of setting up our worlds. A lot of times we're setting up worlds that are sort of on the ascendant. You mm -hmm. know, empires, kingdoms are on the ascendant. Let's how about setting it on worlds that are in decline and mm. like what can you do to stop the decline? Yeah. You know, you know there's past knowledge that's no longer available. You know. Cities are becoming, great cities are becoming depopulated. Um, so rather than going into completely new areas, you're in an area that's too old, in a sense, that's, that's been yeah. passed by. Or you're, or I think a com another common gaming trope is not one that's in, that's not, not one that is currently descending, but one that has long since descended. Right. You know, because I do feel like uh, in Dungeon Crawl Classics, there's this idea, of, there, there are these like great ancient empires that had fantastic technologies potentially. Same thing is true with the Judges Guild Wilderland settings. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's a lot of very strange stuff that you can right, and it's that, even in the implied OD and D and to a certain extent Greyhawk setting that yeah. was, you know. But I'm not sure that I've ever played in a role playing game setting in which you were in the civilization that was actively declining. Right. Either it is declined, forgotten, and buried, or it hasn't declined yet because we're still in the ascension period. Right. Um, yeah, or all the way up to post-apocalyptic even, but yes. yes. But, but yeah, it would be very interesting to play in a society where the players could decide whether they're going to be the agents of chaos and the cause of the ex accelerating downfall of the society, or if they're going to be uh, on the side of law, so to speak, instead of upholding the society, doing their best to prevent the society from... Yeah. You know, falling over, and uh, you can be an agent of chaos and be involved in the in the in the um, decline of your your civilization and still be playing like a good character, right? Because just think of like Star Wars. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe in this case, law is right. um, it's law is the empire. Yeah. The rebels are chaos. Exactly. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, things were just ticking along just fine until the rebels blew up that Death Star. You know, <laughs> you, you know how much of the GDP of the empire was tied up in Death Star? You just, blew, you just there's ten thousand people that had jobs there and all those contractors. Think about all those people. You know, malice to feed, you know? <laughs> right. Um, no, so I think um, there's a lot to sort of just, like, as you read this, even if you're not literally 
um, pulling out plot points or individual scenes out of Less Darkness Fall, it could put you in a useful mindset for sort of world building and letting your world take along and, and you know, going where it goes. Yeah. Um, anything else that we can draw out of this, Jeff, before we go? I think this is a good place to wrap up. Okay. So, um, Hoy, now that we're finishing episode 16, what are our next two episodes? Our next episode, episode 17, will be Robert E. Howard, Elspreg DeCamp, and Lynn Carter's Conan of Samaria. That's the mm. second book in the Lancer slash Ace series. Nice. And uh, after that will be Fritz Leiber's Swords and Deviltry. Which is the second book in the Lankmar series. Lovely. All right, so uh, anything else before we go? That's it. All right, see you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.